Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm here in the uh, studio of Gangland Wire. have a special guest today, Kenneth Lamaster. I will let him introduce himself, but just before that, don't forget to hit me up on your Venmo app. Buy me a cup of coffee or a uh, shot and a beer. Help support the podcast. And if you don't have the Venmo app, why well, go to my donation page. And, you know, I've added some new uh, rewards for making a $25 or more donation. I now will give you a gift certificate to get a Kindle version of my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos, or my new movie, Brothers Against Brothers, uh, the Savella Spiro War. And then I have the old standby, Gangland Wire. So without any more commercial breaks, let's introduce Kenneth Lamaster. Welcome, Kenneth. It's really great to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So, Kenneth, uh, you, you wrote a book. The title of the book is, let me get this down. That's a, that's a mouthful. You want to say the title of your book? The title of the book is Leavenworth 7, The Deadly 1931 Prison Break. Yeah, that, that's an interesting prison break, folks. That was uh, a lot of the uh, the roving gangs of bank robbers in the 1930s broke out of, what, two or three different prisons, I believe, at the time. Uh, sometime in the next, those two or three years, uh, Bonnie and Clyde broke some people out down in uh, Huntsville or Eastham Prison Farm, and a bunch of these guys broke out up in Leavenworth, and they went on a bank robbing spree and ended up in a big shootout up in Little Bohemia. I did a podcast on Dillinger and Little Bohemia shootout. But, Kenneth, let's uh, tell the wiretappers out there a little bit about your history. You have kind of interesting history. Ending up with uh, you were even a prison guard up there in Leavenworth for quite some time, correct? That is correct. I, I always tell people that I did life on the installment plan <laughs> eight hours at a time. I started out my career as a correctional specialist in the U.S. Army. I served at Fort Leavenworth at U.S. Military Prison there. Uh, towards the end of my first three years in the military, I met this little girl and fell in love, and we got married, and I decided I was going to spend my time in Kansas. So I went to work for the Kansas State Penitentiary when it was still the Kansas State Penitentiary. And a little over a year after that, I went to work at the United States Penitentiary at Leavenworth and worked there for 27 years. So... From 1979 till 2010 is when I served as a correctional professional. 
Wow, you you saw all of our mobsters go through there from down here in Kansas City, didn't you? Uh, a lot of acquaintances for not only the Kansas City mob, but mob all over the country. I've, John Stanford worked for me for about eight years. Oh, really? Uh, knew Tuffy DeLuna. Had uh, conversations with uh, Russell Buffalino about what they did with Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, interesting, interesting. That's really topical right now, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> I guess you've seen the Irishman. <laughs> I, I saw the Irishman, and i got to say that Joe Pesci does a excellent Russell Buffalino. Here it is, folks, from a man who actually knows Russell Buffalino and interacted with him over a period of time. We'll give Joe Pesci a thumbs up for his uh, his portrayal of the, the famous mob boss from uh, – he was from Pennsylvania, New York, upstate New York, Pennsylvania, York, area. Pennsylvania yeah. It's like it's hard to uh, put a particular city like Gotti in New York, Nick Savellan in Kansas City, uh, Tony Accardo in Chicago. Oh, yeah, it, 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 those guys, you know, Buffalino had the, I guess, the northern part of Pennsylvania. Stanford had the southern part of Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah, um, they had Philadelphia area and all that mess that happened down there. Interesting, yeah. interesting. We may have to come back and do some more shows on on those guys' time and they, they were an interesting crew. Yeah, I'll bet. And one quick question. Is it like we've seen in the movies? Do they get some of their own food and like to cook their own uh, back in a cell block where they all kind of have, will be housed in, a, in the same kind of general vicinity, a tier, of a, a, a wing or something? They actually do house them pretty much basically close together. And back when I first started at Leavenworth, they had a, in D cell house, it was called the old man's wing. Uh, and all of the older mobsters, Russell Buffalino, Tito Famura, Henry Borelli, all of those guys were living in the cell house, but they were living on the lower galleries. And the rest of the top galleries, it was five galleries high, about a city block and a half long. And the younger guys were upstairs. They were just regular everyday Oh, run-of-the-mill okay. criminals, but the the mafia pretty much held it down downstairs. Christian David, who was mm-hmm. part of the uh, French Connection, oh yeah, crew, From New York, and on up to Montreal, yeah. And, and he was he was there at the time. And I know some of your listeners may know who Phil Garrido was. Mm, I'm not familiar with that. Garrido name. was the guy a couple of years ago that was found holding a woman out in his backyard in Vegas, and his wife and him were his wife was kind of a strange duck herself but they were holding a young girl out in the backyard and they had a child that was out in a makeshift shed oh yeah 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 i remember that uh wow. he was part of he was there at the institution at the time huh interesting you've seen some interesting people <laughs> uh, did, corrections is one of those jobs that uh you see something every day that makes you go huh yeah i know we, we've got our friend from uh David from who was a guard at Marion that has a it's not a podcast it's more like a uh, YouTube podcast he he does uh, YouTube videos and tells stories out of Marion Penitentiary uh, so it's called As the Key Turns, you guys. If you haven't ever taken a look at As the Key Turns on YouTube, you ought to take a look at some of those stories. He's been on here. He's a guy that he told us a story about when John Gotti first hit the cell block at, at Merriam and he was one of the guards. He said he said the men just lined up like it was the king was coming in and and really gave him huge respect until the end and one of them beat him so bad it almost killed him. Now John Stanford was the same way when he got to Leavenworth. His 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 following was quite 
Oh, really? Well, quite well. And, and I mean, when you've got figureheads like that with the mafia, they you've got a crew that actually walks around them, protects them, keeps them from getting beat on. Yeah. And most of the other inmates know they they're not messing with those guys. They're not messing with them. Interesting. Well, some things sometimes uh, life does imitate art, or maybe art looked at, at life and, and then created in the movies. And, oh, exactly. And everything. It, 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 sometimes I sit there and I mean, looking at the Irishman, I was like, <laughs> yeah. I did, I, I've seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> kind of how people relate to each other. Oh, yeah. The it, respect it's, is it's, paid. It, it's kind of, you know, the 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 higher up you go, the, the, the better it is. Let's put it that way. Really? So uh, you also were at the, the historian up at Leavenworth, correct? I... I, I kind of got that job by default. I had, uh, I've amassed over the course of my career probably three, 4,000 photographs of, of the military prison and the U.S. penitentiary, oh, yeah. uniforms, badges, mm-hmm. uh, you name it. I've probably got, I've got it somewhere in a box somewhere and, and done a lot of reading. There's including mine, my two books on the penitentiary, Leavenworth 7 and U.S. Penitentiary Leavenworth. I've, I know of about 33 books that are written that have some type of storyline that deals with Leavenworth. Wow. So um, let's talk about your most recent book. First of all, you, you mentioned that other book. Talk, just, just tell the folks a little bit what that's about and how they can get it. It's, a, it's more of a picture book. Uh, yes, sir. It's, it, it's, I'm one of these that kind of... I don't jump in the middle of the pool. I kind of stick my toe in to see what right. the water's like. I understand. And the first three books I wrote were basically uh, photographic histories. Since I was at the U.S. or the U.S. Penitentiary for 27 years, I wrote a pictorial history of the federal prison mm-hmm. through Arcadia Publishing, and then did a book on Fort Leavenworth because I was stationed there, and then a book on the city of Leavenworth and the development of the city of Leavenworth in its earliest stages. And they've drawn a lot of interest. The federal prison book, USP Leavenworth, has drawn a lot of interest um, from a lot of different people throughout the United States. It carries on from the very earliest beginnings of the institution all the way through the modern era of corrections. It tells the development of the institution, why it was developed, who all was there? And I've got pictures of the Birdman and Carl Pan's Ram, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Nash, Frank Nitty. Cool. So, how, how would a person get those books? They're all on Amazon. They're all on Amazon. Uh, they can. Uh, Do you have an author page? Can they just search I, I, Kenneth Lamaster? If they put Kenneth M. Lamaster okay. in the uh, search engine of their little old computers at home, yeah, they're uh, find they'll, they'll find out more about me than I know about myself. <laughs> And then just go to the Amazon link, and uh, of course we'll, ha- we'll you'll find the podcast once it goes up too. But uh, just go to the Amazon link, and, and you'll find all those books. So let's talk about your most recent book, Levin- the Leavenworth Seven: The Deadly 1931 Prison Break. Uh, how did that come about? The escape actually took about three years to mastermind and pull off. Hmm. The crew that was actually broken out, seven of them, the four of those guys were members of Frank Nash's crew, the man that was killed at the Union Station Massacre. And most people don't realize that Frank Nash, most see him as they know about the Union Station Massacre, but they really know very little about Frank Nash. Nash was a mastermind. His father had ran hotels in Bar- Bartlesville, Oklahoma, 
And he had this uncanny ability to talk to people. Uncanny ability. And he could schmooze his way. He actually talked his way out of the uh, Oklahoma Territorial Prison three separate occasions. One occasion, I'll join the Army. Okay. They let him join the Army. He actually fought World War I. Second time, well, I've got some business to take care of in Bartlesville. Oh, go ahead, Frank. You're okay. And he would. his personality was he could win over just about anybody. And Frank Nash, when he was Ed McAllister, had became friends with Al Spencer. Al Spencer was a territorial uh, cowboy that fashioned himself after Jesse James, and the media had followed him for quite some time until they just kind of realized, hey, this guy's pulling off bank robberies, but he's pulling off robberies that are only netting 25 bucks, $17, just just odd pennies and, and nickels off of what you know the Henry Stars and everybody else was pulling off at the time, and they started kind of making fun of him. Well, Al Spencer decided he was going to leave an indelible mark in the history of Oklahoma and decided that he was going to rob a train. Ah, <laughs> no, Jesse James, he was going back to Jesse James. And Frank Nash, being the mastermind that he was, he was Al Spencer's lieutenant in his crew. He went out and, and surveyed what they could rob, and they wound up robbing the Katy Limited, the MKT Railroad in Okeesa, Oklahoma, which in itself would wind up being the last armed train robbery in the history of Oklahoma. And when they pulled his armed train robbery off, half of the crew had never pulled off an armed train robbery in their life. They had one guy, Grover C. Durrell, which was one of the seven that was broke out. He smashed the, the fireman in the, in, in the engine. And, with, and Frank Nash, the whole time this robbery's going off, Frank Nash is standing there talking politics. <laughs> and... Calm, cool, collected, and Nash had figured out we could rob this, and he told the guys when they robbed his train, leave the federal bonds alone. Mm -hmm. We can get our way out of McAllister, we can get our way out of the, the situation in Oklahoma, but if you touch the federal bonds that are on this train, we can't get ourselves out of the federal prison. Well, Al Spencer decided he was just going to take it all. He took everything off the train, including federal bonds, and... All of the guys were caught within a short period of time. It, so, and, it, so that's what got the feds how they ended up at Leavenworth. And that's how they ended up at Leavenworth. Bonds. And when they got to Leavenworth, Frank Nash started schmoozing, schmoozing himself away around the institution. Yeah, he knows the game. He knows how to play the game. I know another guy that did that up at Merriam. He knew how to play that game. And, and he talked himself into a job that was as sweet as it can be. He was the head cook in the deputy warden's house out on the front lawn of the institution. Oh, yeah, I've seen that house. <laughs> and he, uh, interesting enough, his assistant cook was Frank Nitty. Oh, really? Well, Frank Nash, one afternoon, decides to, he goes out to the front gate of the prison, tells the officer he's got a party to cook for down at the deputy warden's house. Of course, they let him out. Yeah. He goes down to the house. About 9.30, they call up the house and said, Hey, Nash has got to get back over here for the 10 o'clock count. Nash ain't been over here all day. Uh-oh. And he's gone. And the same way with uh, a couple of the other crew that helped Nash mastermind this escape was Thomas James Holden and Francis Keating. They were put in Leavenworth for robbing the Evergreen Park mail train 
in Evergreen Park, Illinois, mm. and they had actually got away with the robbery of the train for over two years, and another crew pulled off the exact same style robbery using all of the techniques that Keating and Holden had used. They pull this train robbery off. They get caught. The FBI figures out who pulled off the initial train robbery, so they send that crew plus Holden and Keating to Leavenworth. Holden and Keating get into Leavenworth. They make friends with a guy by the name of George Machine Gun Kelly. Oh, really? Machine Gun Kelly was a little bit of an educated man. had grown up in the upper middle class section of Memphis, Tennessee, and he uh, is working in the records office. Well, unbeknownst to a lot of people at, in the institution, George Machine Gun Kelly's dumbing uh, passes for inmates, trustees' passes to work outside the walls of the institution. Mm -hmm. He dummies two passes for Francis Keating and Thomas Holden. They get outside the penitentiary. They walk off. Mm -hmm. So they're gone. Keating and Holden uh, meet with Frank Nash in uh, Cicero, Illinois. They've got an inside man that is helping with the plot. They've got a correctional officer that is smuggling communications in and out of the institution. They get word to them in Cicero, Illinois, put the ball forward, and they start drumming up this plan to help these guys get out of the institution. Well, you know, did they were they able to get some guns inside the institution in this one too? I noticed down in uh, east of Oklahoma uh, at Huntsville uh, with the Clyde, Bonnie and Clyde prison break, they smuggled a gun in there to where the work crew could find the gun. Did they do the same thing up there? They actually part of the plan was is as the guys started watching and paying attention inside to the routine. The worst thing in the world that you could do in a prison is set a routine. Yeah. Because inmates are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They can watch you and figure out what your routine is. You don't ever want to do the same thing two or three times in a row because they know what it is. Mm -hmm. So they started watching what was going on. They used the business office and the federal prison industries. And they ordered a barrel of shoe paste. Because the shoe factory, which manufactured at that time all of the shoes that the military wore, they were inside the walls of the institution well, they order a barrel of shoe paste from the company that uh, the institution orders it from. They pick it up, hollow it out on the inside, put a cache of weapons to include six pistols, a thirty wow. six rifle, 117 uh, blasting caps, 17 sticks of dynamite, oh my God. and 100 feet of blasting cord <laughs> into an inner tube and sink it into this barrel of shoe paste. Oh, man. Paint it the color that the federal prison recognizes. Yeah. And they ship it into the institution. Ah, that's amazing. And once they got the weapons inside the institution, the, the, the biggest plot killer for the escape was Frank Nash and his crew, Machine Gun Kelly and Thomas James Holden and Francis Keating, had pulled up and did a robbery up north that resulted in the death of the uh, bank president's son and Charlie Harmon. And they called, they got news to them and, or word to them inside the institution telling them, hey, you know, if you go out on that day, you're on your own. They're, we're hot. Frank's been shot. 
we're not going to be down there. The plan was is they were going to pull up in front of the institution with two separate cars that were manned with uh, police radios, yeah. clothes for the guys, money for them to get out of the get out of town, and that plan dissolved once that bank robbery went to pieces. So they were robbing a bank so they'd have some cash mm-hmm. when they got down for the uh, prison break. And, and once, you know, in these small towns like this, back in those days, the, the word went out, especially if there was a murder like that, the word went out to all the little towns around were, were on the lookout. And they probably had a car description at least, and, and certainly there weren't that many cars traveling around anyhow and on the, the more through roads. I once did a, a Bonnie and Clyde uh, tour taking some of the roads that they talked about them taking like 169 and 69 the, what are, are secondary roads now but those are the kind of the, some of the only through roads to get to some of these places back in the 30s and and especially if it rained you know those other roads were mud roads you were getting through them but so these uh, local policemen that they, they'll be looking out for any kind of a a car that comes anywhere close and and has people that don't really belong out in the country so yeah they would have been hot yeah, they. So they were on the run, and I always tell people that this escape started falling apart because they picked the worst warden in the world to ever take hostage. Yeah, they took a guy by the name of uh, Thomas Bruce White. Thomas Bruce White had grew up in Texas. His father was a uh, county sheriff, and he grew up watching his dad in law enforcement forever, and he and his brothers became members of the Texas Rangers. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was a Texas Ranger for almost 10 years, became a railroad detective. From a railroad detective, he decides in 1918 he's going to join the U.S. military and fight in World War One, and he, pay, he flunks a physical. Hmm. And this guy by the name of J. Edgar Hoover come calling, and he says, hey, you know, you're kind of the type of guy we're looking <laughs> for to uh, yeah. form this agency called the Bureau of Investigation. Yeah. And he, him and his brother was actually one of the very first FBI agents ever hmm. hired for the Bureau of Investigation, which, which turned into the FBI. But this was a guy who was a warden, and, and this was not just some uh, bureaucrat that had come up through, you know, as a good typist and, a, and a, a connected to some politicians and then got promoted in the prison industry, is what I hear you saying. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. He, he was a very smart individual and and. And tough, too. And, and tough. Ken, how did it go down? How did they end up? What, what was kind of the overall plan, I guess? The overall plan was to take the warden hostage, force open the gate. Well, going back to you don't want to set a routine, one of the things that, that Thomas Bruce White did every morning around 9 o'clock after the institution stopped serving breakfast, and at that point in time, one of the things everybody's kind of always asked that question well, it takes three years to develop this escape. How did they not get caught? Well, back in the Prohibition era, when you've got all these gangsters running around, you've got bootleggers running around, you've got all these laws that, you know, the Harrison Narcotics Act is new, Prohibition is new, uh, the interstate transportation of stolen vehicles becomes a federal crime. So you're talking about going from an institution that was originally designed to hold 1,500 inmates, during the 1920s, their population was 4,500. Wow, so it was double. They were doubled up. And, and they had, they just had inmates everywhere in that yeah. institution. And it became a, you know, a lot of people take a look at the Birdman of Alcatraz and think, well, just how does a guy 
maintain a bird aviary inside the walls of a federal prison. Yeah. Well, it was sort of one of those things that they had so many inmates that they were kind of giving them something to do. It, it's kind of like the out of sight, out of mind. If we give you something to do, you're not creating havoc or chaos. Yeah. So, and that's how that works. But they had uh, taken three years to, to mastermind this, get anything and everything in and out and get it all set. And on the morning of December 11th, 1931, the seven inmates put the escape plan to in motion. They, they pretty well had the run of the inside of the prison, sounds to me like these guys did. Oh, yeah. they they A lot of those guys, they worked in, and they used forged passes to obtain access to what we call the rear quarter. The If you take a look at pictures of Leavenworth, the institution, the administration building is out front. You come in the front door of the institution, you pass through three grills. Now, back then there was only two. Mm-hmm. And you would uh, get access into the institution. Well, the institution has a central rotunda, sort of like the uh, congressional building in in Washington, D.C., and you walk down a long hallway, and at the end of that hallway, if you go straight back, you've got the dining room on one side, the auditorium on the other, and you've got two exits. One goes towards the west side of the institution. One goes towards the east side of the institution that get you access outside. Well, the inmates get up to the rear quarter, which is on the east side where they're coming from, present these two phony passes to the correctional officer there, and they get access in there. They take him hostage immediately. They've got the guns. They've got all of the dynamite, and they had even taken, they'd got the dynamite and the weapons in the institution about three days before that, and they had taken the dynamite and actually sweated nitroglycerin out of it by cooking it mm-hmm. and put it in a bottle. So they got into the main institution, and the warden was holding conferences that morning with inmates. They would hold meetings every morning uh, with inmates. So they were used to they were they knew inmates would be coming and going from the warden's and, office, and, and they knew exactly where he was going to be at yeah. any given time. Yeah. And the guy actually sitting in, at the desk, uh, talking to Frank or Tom White at the time was Fred Barker, Maul Barker. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah, who's who here? <laughs> and they get up to the warden's office, get inside the warden's office. And they start throwing down, and t- they even took inmates hostage. Yeah. They took the inmates hostage, all of the staff hostage. Tom White heard the commotion going on outside of his office. First thing he did was, is he took his car keys out of his pocket and threw them underneath his desk and covered them up with a rug. Yeah. And they come in, forced him out of the office, forced him towards the front door. Well, they get to the front door of the institution, and there's this older correctional officer there, and they look at him, they tell him, open the door. And he says... I ain't opening this door. There's only one man in the world that can order me to open this door, and that's the warden himself. <laughs> and one of them pulls up a uh, stick of dynamite, lights a match, and he tells me, he says, you don't open this door, I'm going to blow us all to hell. Correctional officer looks at him and says, I, I'm an old man. I guess we'll see each other in hell then. Oh, man, that was a tough old bird there. And, and White kind of seeing the situation as it was is if they blow up the front end of the institution, this could cause a larger escape. Yeah. So he kind of prevails calmer heads, I guess, and tells the officer, said, look, just open the door. Let us go out the front door. Yeah. And we'll we'll deal with it from there. And they start out the front door. They've got all these hostages. They've got 11 hostages in total. They force their way out the door, and the officer's up in the tower. 
there was a main tower that sits out in front of Leavenworth, and at that time, there was a catwalk around the tower. Well, one of the officers recognizes what's going on at, at the moment they step out on the front portico of the institution, and he jumps up and rips the canvas off of a uh, 19, uh, 1917 belt-fed yeah, I was gonna say, Browning I th- machine gun. They would have been armed with at least BARs up there, but they had a... Uh, <laughs> they, had a they had a Browning Browning. Browning, Browning too, oh, wow. And, and he... Uh, with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pulls the canvas back and the warden's like, hey, let's let's think about what's going <laughs> so on Wait here. a minute, wait a minute. I'm down here in the middle of this. <laughs> yeah. So they get down to the bottom of the stairs and they grab White and start across the front lawn with him towards the warden's house, which at that point in time was on the front lawn of the yeah. institution. They start out over the, the lawn and the guy in the armory opens fire on them. Wow. Well, they start to return fire, and White is, once again, he, he tells them, hey, <laughs> you know, let's think about what we're doing here, because we've got, you know, houses across the street, and yeah, really. innocent people, you know, doing whatever, and, and they got all the way to the warden's house, and jump in his garage, they jump in his car, and the inmates say, where's the keys? <laughs> I left them in my office. <laughs> well, now it becomes a free-for-all. Yeah, they have nobody to blame but themselves on that one. And they jump out of the car, and once they get out of the car, as soon as they get out of the car, the powerhouse whistle starts blowing. Yeah, it's a they every institution, every institution has a whistle that alerts the staff that are not on duty that there's trouble at the institution. You need to respond to the institution. Plus the town around, because it's built right, you know, practically in the town. Oh yeah, all the townspeople know, hey, there's escape. So they they run towards Metropolitan Avenue, which is the street that runs in front of the institution. Yeah. And at that point in time, and this will tell you how desperate guys can be, there used to be a bus stop right there. They're actually contemplating, hey, we need to jump this bus and take it hostage <laughs> really? to get out of town. And one of them recognized a car going east on Metropolitan, and they jump out in front of the car, which was... Uh, a group of buffalo soldiers from Fort Leavenworth, they were coming back from a rabbit hunt. <laughs> so they forced them out of the car. And, well, now we have more weapons and ammunition. We have more, <laughs> you, you know, more of everything. So they spin the car around. And they head out west. And they ask the warden, what's the quickest way out of here? And he tells them, well, he says, you know, if you follow the, you take a ride up here and follow the highway out, you'll be in Atchison, Kansas within about 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. You go across the bridge, get on the back roads, and nobody'd ever know where you were at or whatever. Yeah, get over to Missouri from there, and then. And the the guy that was driving the car was a, a relatively new inmate to the institution by the name of Charlie Berta, out of San Francisco. And he looks at the warden and he says, "You're lying." Well, this is where everything goes crazy because the previous month was a record month for rain Uh-oh. and freezing and thawing. So they wind up leaving the pavement, turning yeah. on to 20th and Metropolitan, into a into a mud road that buries. You got eight people in a car. You're not going anywhere. Those if, old skinny tired cars. You're not going anywhere. 
and they actually bury the car in yes. mud and roll it over. Oh boy! And they get out of the car and they take off running up the street, and it's it's just almost like a Keystone Cops type thing. Yeah. They are running up the street trying to find cars to steal, and one of the officers that was responding to the institution, they actually jumped him and took his car, threw him out on the curb, and they took off uh, west of town. And while they're and and we're talking back country roads yeah. back then, and they're mud laden and they're they're bogging down. Well, they get out to a place called uh, Possum Hollow, which is just you know every little every little portion of town back then had its, its little, <laughs> had its own little had its own little name. Yeah, Tennessee Valley. We had Tennessee Valley up home, so Possum Hollow. <laughs> and, and they get out there, and there's this little one room schoolhouse called the Possum Hollow School. And they see this car sitting out front, so they're going to steal it to break up the, the the amount of people that are in cars. Well, they get in the school, terrorize the kids. The kids are all screaming and everything. And one of the guys runs up and he grabs a school teacher's purse and says, give me the keys to that car out there. And the teacher looks at him and says, you know, I'm just a school teacher. That, that car is all I've really got. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they start battering back and forth over a purse and keys and... She says, give me back my purse. And he says, give me my keys. Give me back my purse. Give me the keys. <laughs> she says, I'll give you the keys if you give me back my purse. <laughs> wow. So they get out in front, stick the keys in the ignition of the car, turn the car, nothing happens. Well, the teacher had had problems with the car, so they had actually pushed a push-button start up underneath the dash where she could push a button to start the uh, car. Yeah. They didn't know that, so... Yeah. They abandon that car, jump in the <laughs> back in the car, and back out to the highway they go. And about a mile or so down the road, they thought they were turning into a, another road, and they were actually turning into a back lot drive to a farm. And they just as soon as they turned into it, they buried the car all the way up yeah. to the axles. So now they're caught again. Now, remind me, was Machine Gun Kelly... Out there with these guys? Or no, Machine Gun he Kelly. He helped them from the inside. but he, he actually helped Thomas James Holden and Francis Keating get out. And they actually released Machine Gun Kelly for good conduct early from a two-year sentence that he was doing for uh, smuggling alcohol on an Indian reservation yeah. in Oklahoma. Yeah, see, he was better to wait for that. He, he probably knew he was a short-timer, so he didn't go along on that. But he did and, Well, him. and he was already out at that point in time. He was he actually helped them smuggle the weapons. Oh, he was one of them helped smuggle the weapons in. Interesting. He was looking for for recruits for his bank-robbing crew, probably how they got free. Oh, yeah, and, and a lot of those guys, you take a look at the makeup of some of those crews, the Maul Barker gang, the Machine Gun Kelly gang, the Frank Nash gang, the Thomas Holden gang, uh, a lot of those gangs back then, they interworked with a lot of yeah. each other. Yeah, they knew each other. I, I noticed that. And, and anyway, they, they get out there. They take a whole family hostage. Well, by this time, you've got everybody that could carry a gun in, in on the heels yeah. of these, <laughs> these guys. And they've even got airplanes up in the air from Fort Leavenworth. Yeah. The military prison at Fort Leavenworth at that point in time was what was called the Federal Prison Annex. Everybody kind of gets a little bit confused when you talk about the military prison and the U.S. penitentiary. They're two separate yeah. institutions about three miles apart. And twice during that military uh, prison's history, it's been part of the U.S. prison system. It was actually the home of the very first federal prison when Leavenworth first opened. Mm -hmm. And the inmates from that institution built the current-day federal prison 
marching back and forth three miles every day, and the military prison had been turned over again to the Federal Bureau of Prisons because of a riot that occurred at Leavenworth in August of 1930 hmm. because of the overcrowded conditions and poor everything that was going on in the institution at the time, so they reopened it to kind of relieve the, the, the overcrowded situation in that prison. The officers from the military or the military prison responded over to the federal prison, and two companies of soldiers actually responded to the institution itself. Once those inmates got out the front door, it was mere chaos in the institution. Inmates were inmates knew what was going on, yeah, and they decided that they were going to kind of be a little bit. Some of them were kind of. Uh, passive about what they were doing. Some of them were even more, a little bit more active and a, almost sheer riot was breaking out inside the institution. So they, they decided that, hey, you know what? We're gonna send two companies of soldiers inside the walls of the institution. And once the inmates seen two full companies of soldiers coming inside the institution with weapons and loaded for bear, they were kind of like, hey, we don't want nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah. So they all marched back to their cells, got them locked up and the manhunt was on, and everything from the city police to the county sheriffs to anybody that could carry a gun and knew the terrain, then they had already notified the FBI in Kansas City. The FBI, and one of the kind of misunderstood facts about the FBI was is, is that they didn't actually carry guns until after the Frank Nash killing yeah. at Union Station, and that's actually inaccurate. The FBI agents could carry guns and be armed. The only thing that they had to do was is, is when they went into a municipality, say they came from Kansas City to Leavenworth, they had to notify the, the authorities that they were actually FBI and they were carrying guns mm. so and get the approval, the yay or nay, from the local authorities to whether they could carry a gun in, inside the municipality. Mm. So they get out. The inmates are continuing their quest for freedom and they take this family hostage, and everything's just going south. So they decide that they're going to start walking a cow path over to the next farm over in order to get to the closest highway that's actually paved. Mm -hmm. And they march probably about a half a mile over to this farm. They take more hostages. All the way that they're marching over there, they've got airplanes buzzing their head. They've got guys they could see that are approaching from all angles that are armed. Mm, this and, does and, not sound like it's going to have a good ending no, <laughs> for the inmates and, and, and maybe some hostages too. <laughs> and, and they get out on the, they get to this farm and they break back it. They break into this farm, take another family hostage. And it was decided at that point in time, they were going to take three people with them out to the highway. They told everybody else to get into the basement, took these three, including a man and a wife and one of their farm workers. And they started towards the road and as they're walking towards the road, they're seeing the posse, which at this time, according to the FBI reports and, and local newspaper reports and stuff like that, numbered anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people wow. that are on the trail of these seven guys. So they get out to the highway, and of course, you know, anytime you have a big deal yeah. going on anywhere, you got sightseers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everybody's out looking for the action. <laughs> so... Here comes this car of sightseers up the road, and it's a little coupe. And they stop this car, tell them to get out of the car, and it's a couple of kids, and they're, you know, they tell them to walk back up the road and don't look back. Well, back in that era, a coupe's got two seats in the front and what they call a rumble the seat rumble in the back. Seat, yeah. 
And it's there's no way it's going to hold seven individuals. It's got running boards though. Well, they, 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 <laughs> I think they do. Yeah, they have running boards. But, 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 they needed another car. Is what your vehicles vehicle suspensions have come a long way since the 1920s <laughs> yeah. and 30s. So they tell three of the other or four of the other guys shake out and find another vehicle. They're going to take this one. Yeah. Well, you've got three guys in the warden, four guys in the warden actually, that are standing alongside the road. And those guys, the others, take off looking for another vehicle. The warden looks up, and he sees one of the inmates come up with a .30-06 rifle and point it towards the kids walking back up the road. And he took that opportunity. You've got three hostages standing there. One of them's a female. And the whole time they had walked across this field, the warden had told them, said, hey, you know, you don't need to do anything to this girl. She's not, you know... She's not part of this. You don't have to do anything and hurt her and whatever. And the inmates kept telling her, you know, you don't have to worry about it because we're going to kill you first. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it. So the warden, kind of concerned about the situation with the female and, and the other two hostages, reach up and grabs one of the inmates that has a shotgun and gets in a struggle over a shotgun. And the inmate hollers he's trying to get the gun. Well, he, the warden hollers at the hostages to run. And... The inmate with a .30-06 walks up behind him, hits him in the back of the head, and he lets go of the shotgun, and the inmate with a shotgun turns around and unloads both barrels into the warden and blows him into a ditch. Mm. Well, now they think they've killed the warden. Yeah. So they jump in the car, all four of them. They take off, and as they're taking off, here comes the warden's sedan up over the top of the hillside with three correctional officers and a deputy warden inside the car, and you've got a county sheriff that is headed in their direction. And this is in the middle of Highway 92 in Leavenworth. They uh, actually engage in a gun battle where these guys are, the inmates have got 30-06s and pistols and shotguns. Well, they're getting shot at by five people that have Thompson uh, 45 caliber <laughs> submachine guns. Oh, my God. And they actually struck the car and hit an inmate by the name of Will Green was one of the escapees. I hit him in the head and actually, to tell you how hard-headed he was, the bullet didn't penetrate his head, but it actually <laughs> uh, fractured his skull. So they wind up, they thinking they're going to get off the road into another uh, back road, and they turn into the uh, driveway of a home, and here we are again, mud. Mud. And they bury this coop all the way up to the axles, and they get out, and they start running towards this house. More hostages. God, Well, the crazy. only guy in this house... Believe it or not, was a 73-year-old farmer by the name of Emerson Salisbury. And he looks up and he sees these guys coming. And he says, yeah, hunting fellas? And they said, no, we're the, we're the hunted. Yeah. And they pull him in the house and they start looking for additional weapons and trying to figure out a way out. Well, one of them on the way up, the oldest inmate out of the crew, Grover C. Durrell, had told him, you know, we get up in that house, we're not getting out of it. You mind if I shake out and try to find my own way? And it's like, you know, go do what you got to do. You know, and, and Grover C. Durrell got out on his own, and you've got three inmates in the house. Well, for about the next three and a half hours, this house is literally bombarded mm. with uh, posse members shooting into the house. They shot tear gas into the house. The inmates are shooting back. Emerson Salisbury, 73 years old, is in the house, and he's stuck. And he even actually went up to the top floor of the house into the attic 
and started waving a white handkerchief, <laughs> and they actually started shooting at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 you know, he finally decided, hey, you know, this is my chance. Yeah, there's no prisoners in that deal. So he actually slid down a. The way they describe it, there is a. Um, the, I'm not even exactly sure how to even describe it for your listeners. He just actually slid down a chute and went out the front door. Mm. These three inmates were stuck in the house, and there was no way out. They knew there was no way out. And from what the coroner's report read, two of the inmates suffered gunshot wounds, one behind the left ear, one behind the right ear, mm. and the other one to the right temple of the head. Yeah, the coup de grace. Like I said, no prisoners in this deal here. Well, that's a hell of a story, you know, kind of running low on time. So, folks, you need to get this book. As you can tell, this is one hell of a story, and it's a good read. And to find out exactly what happened in the end, is there any any last things you want them to look for in that book? One of the things this book kind of describes, and it's been well-received through the correctional community throughout the United States, um, One of the, if you go to Amazon and you read the comment that the guy put on there, uh, it's actually refreshing to read a book that was written by somebody that actually worked in the prison environment Yeah. instead of somebody that writes a book about prisons that doesn't know anything he, he knows about it. Yeah. It gives you the inner workings of how prisons work, and it, it shows you how the inner workings of an escape will actually uh, take time to do, how they get things in and out of the institution, how they communicate inside and out of the institution. It'll give you the framework of... All of the characters that were in the book, how they managed to wind up in the federal prison system, Frank Nash and his crew from the Okisa train robbery, Thomas James Holden, Frank Francis Keating, Machine Gun Kelly, how they wound up after the escape, some of them going to Alcatraz, the outcome of how they all, their lives ended and how they, uh, some of them became outstanding citizens some of them never became anything other than inmates yeah or dead or dead (laughs) and thomas james holden actually most people don't he's not an everyday name in in criminal circles in today's society most people don't realize that thomas james holden actually would become the very first man ever placed on the fbi's 10 most wanted list oh really (laughs) so his his notoriety uh, of being a bad guy was was well documented and charlie berta the, the driver of the car, he would actually be sent to Alcatraz, and he was actually the last man ever to be placed in what they called the dungeon at Alcatraz mm-hmm. because he was such a malcontent. He uh, finally gets out of prison and becomes a bartender in a bar in, San, in his hometown of San Francisco where he can look out the front door of the bar and see Alcatraz. <laughs> see Alcatraz. <laughs> and and the, the, the whole story behind itself and how they actually purchased the the barrel of shoe wax and how they purchased the weapons yeah. and, and everything was all brought out of uh when i started getting interested in this book back when i first started to work at the prison i started collecting anything and everything i could find about this escape mm-hmm. which included newspaper articles i've got pictures from the actual day of the escape that were uh hearst news agency photographs that i'd purchased through ebay mm-hmm. uh I got this idea that, you know, hey, maybe I should call the FBI and send them a four-year request and see just exactly what they send me. Well, you're thinking of an escape that occurred 80 years prior, and you're thinking, well, the FBI's probably got one or two pages on it, yeah. and they'll or they'll tell me you're out of luck. Yeah. How much did you get? Well, 
I get this letter and they tell me, well, we're sending you, we're sending you pages. Yeah. How much is it going to cost first? <laughs> well, well it, it, believe it or not, it was a, it only cost me $60. Oh, first. really? You got lucky. Well, it cost me 60 bucks and the FBI, I got a, I got five envelopes mm-hmm. uh, that contained 2,500 pages. Wow. For and, 60 bucks. Man. And uh, two compact discs of uh-huh. additional yeah. pages that was amazing. I mean, they, they even, the, the investigation and some of the things I wasn't able to, because when you write a book, if you all are ever thinking about writing a book, there's things that there are part of the book and there's things that are not part of the book. And I had to decide to leave some of the, some of the things out of the book that were not consequential to the escape or the, the actual yeah. outcome of, of it. Uh, there were instances where they thought that the Kansas City Mafia had actually financed part of the escape, mm-hmm. helped purchase the weapons and stuff. That didn't pan out. Yeah, uh, all, all those leads that they all those leads down, that, yeah. that they follow down a rabbit hole that really yeah. don't pan when, out. When I you're working a big investigation like that. The phone will start ringing. You start rattling your informants out there, and, and they write down everything. And so oh, somebody yeah. will just have a story they want to tell, and and yeah, that's if, interesting. If anybody out there ever wants to really just find out. You know, when you sit here and listen to Senate confirmation hearings and, and these guys talk about, you know, we do a Form 32 and and and, yeah. and, and we do this and, and we, we don't do that and we don't get yourself an idea and get yourself some FBI files and see exactly how an FBI investigation works. And it, really? it's, it, it, it's amazing what you find and... and Another thing here too, I'll I'll give a plug to the guys at the National Archives and Records Administration yeah. here in Kansas City. Yeah, they're helpful. I've, they're I've they're, they're an amazing group of individuals to work with, and I've worked with them many times. And the inmate files for Leavenworth are actually on file with the National Archives here in Kansas City down mm-hmm. on Pershing Road. Mm-hmm. And the I went down there because I asked them. I said, "So, do you have the court case?" when these guys were tried for escape and they got back with me and said well you know as a matter of fact yes we do yeah they've got them it's amazing what they have and i went down to the national archives that day they brought the file up from the caves in kansas city yeah and i was going through the court case and they actually had they except for the weapons they had all of the evidence Oh, really? That's unusual there to find pictures of the evidence or anything of the evidence. evidence I was actually blown away at the fact they had the the original forged passes Mm -hmm. that the the inmates had used to get into the main quarter of the institution. They had the hotel registry from the uh, hotel in Cicero, Illinois, that Frank Nash, Thomas Holden, Francis Keating... And all of them had uh, stayed in, and I was looking at the registry, and they were there several times. Well, the FBI had a description in there of how they figured out who the their aliases were, mm-hmm. and had pointed out where they had signed in under their aliases in the in the hotel. And when I was going through there, I noticed that Frank Nash's alias was written underneath the name of Billy Frechette. Oh, really? And I thought it was really kind of villagers uh, woman. I I really kind of found that really kind of interesting, and that was one of the one of the the page that I included in the in the book was the fact that you know here you've got Frank Nash and crew 
masterminded an escape that would actually lead to a very similar escape of the Dillinger crew out of the Michigan City prison in Indiana. And, And I'm like, you know, is there a connection between... Evelyn Frechette being in the hotel at the same time. That yeah, could be. I probably was. Dillinger could have been there at that time, helping with them with the plan. So interesting, interesting. This has been great, uh, Ken. This has been great. So we'll, uh, uh, you know, how to go out and find his book, and and you're going to get a lot of bonuses in that book and the documents and that he researched and photos and everything and his other book about uh, Leavenworth Prison, the the Acadia book. It's more of a picture 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 history of uh of, of leavenworth and just go just go to uh, amazon and search for the name kenneth lemaster l-a-m-a-s-t-e-r and uh, we're going to wind on down here folks uh if you have a friend or relative who has a problem with drugs or alcohol make your first call to first call call 816-361-5900 or go to their website www.firstcallkc.org and if you want to uh, find any of my material, go to my website, www.ganglandwire.com. You'll find my most recent movie, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. We did a lot of uh, reenactments in this movie, more than I did in the, in the last one. Had a lot of fun doing those. Turned one of our local uh, kind of a Irish pub, kind of a bar Kelly's into a strip club for one night. And, and uh, we had a lot of fun with that. So go out and get that or Gangland Wire, my book, uh, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. And I recommend you get the uh, Kindle version because uh, I've, I've connected the actual audio from many of the wiretaps to the Kindle version. You can listen to the people as you uh, read the story of how they skim money from Las Vegas casinos. Uh, my, I got my app, Kansas City Mob Tour app. You want to get that and you can take a mob tour of Kansas City wherever you are. You could be in, in Russia and take a... a uh, mob tour of kansas city thanks to the the miracle of the internet so ken it's been great having you here uh it's been a pleasure being here all thank right you. thank you good night folks music provided by our good friend and super fan from portland oregon casey mcbride thanks casey